passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome in to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We are excited to kick off our Top 10 Prospects podcast series today with the Washington Nationals. And to help me break down the Nationals farm system, I am joined today by Savannah McCann. Savannah has covered the Nationals for MLB.com. She's done a lot of on-field reporting on them for Masson. She knows the system and this organization inside and out as well as anyone in baseball. Savannah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Kyle. I'm happy to be here. So you've done this prospect handbook top 30 ranking fours for the Nationals for a couple of years now, and you've seen it evolve. As we've talked about, this team won the World Series in 2019 with a tremendous talent core, most of it homegrown. They also had a couple of key players they traded away to build that World Series team. And inevitably, whenever that happens and some of the talent ages out, you kind of have to move into a rebuild a little bit. We saw the Nationals in 2021 trade away Max Scherzer and Trey Turner at the trade deadline. 2022, of course, they traded one soda to the Padres in a huge deadline deal. The Major League team is certainly in the building stages now, but this farm system has gotten a lot better through those trades, adding high draft picks. They've had top five picks in the draft back-to-back years now. When you look at the system overall, before we dive into individual, individual players, how do you assess it, its strengths, its weaknesses, and just the overall state of it? It is a completely different system, as you said, from when I took it over. I took over right before the Juan Soto trade. So looking at those prospects, they're not even cracking the top 30 anymore because there's just so much more talent in front of them. So this system looks a lot better. And this is like a it's a group of kids that you can look at and go, oh, I'm excited to watch them play. And I say kids, though, not because, you know, anything, but they're 18 years old. They have so many young players in this system that we won't see for a long time, but they have a ton of talent hiding in the depths. Is that talent concentrated anywhere in particular? Pitchers, position players, outfielders, infielders? What are positionally the strengths of this farm system now? The top of this farm system is all outfield arms. It's crazy. It used to be all pitchers, and we've moved away from that. And now the top 10 is only two pitchers. But there's a ton of outfield talent and a lot of arms that kind of play in a lot of different spots. And you have a lot more people who may work at a different position rather than he's either going to be a starter or a reliever. And in terms of weaknesses, because again, we've talked about this farm system was starting from a place that was 
just frankly pretty, pretty barren. It was the worst farm system in baseball. I remember talking to some evaluators in 2021 who flat out said that some of the players on that low A Fredericksburg team were not only players who were not prospects. They were players who shouldn't be in professional baseball. It was one of the worst minor league teams anyone had ever seen. And again, for good reason, they put together a World Series team in the major leagues, which is the point of all this. They had to trade some young talent away in order to do that. Again, totally justified. But again, just there's a little bit of a payback period for that. We've seen the Nationals go through that. Where are the weaknesses? Because again, they've added a lot of talent, but from where this was starting, it's not just something that automatically gets fixed in one or two or even three draft or international signing cycles. That's the biggest thing here is that this doesn't get fixed quickly. Yes, they added a ton of talent, but most of these players are either so young, so raw, both, where you have a ton of upside and a ton of potential, but if it doesn't pan out the way you want it to, that means absolutely nothing. So you can hope for a lot of this and you hope this Nationals farm system is what you think it could be, but we won't really know for a couple of years until we say, oh yes, this guy actually exceeded expectations rather than, yeah, he just wasn't wasn't what we thought. And, and that's the trade-off you have when you have guys in the lower levels. You can dream really big, but sometimes they are just dreams. And it, it's fair to say when you look at the talent concentration of this system, Again, we saw some guys get up to double A last year. James Wood got up there. Dylan Cruz went straight there pretty much after being drafted. But it does seem like from the outside looking in, the majority of the talent is still concentrated probably in, in the low A, high A levels. Is that accurate to say? Absolutely. I mean, I said earlier, the kids, some of these people are still 18 years old in this top 10. It's crazy. And it's hard to project what is an 18-year-old going to be like in four years we can hope again, but we don't know how much weight is he going to put on? How much muscle is he going to put on? Christian Vaccaro is the guy that comes to mind immediately. Of, I don't know what he's going to look like, how he will physically play in a couple of years. We project it, but that only means so much. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely an element of prove it. And with that, one of the other issues that had come up with the Nationals organization is, frankly, they had not drafted very well in the back half of the 2010s. Uh, we saw a lot of players maybe stagnate a little bit in their development, and we saw the Nationals undergo some some pretty wholesale changes this offseason. There was a lot of speculation would Mike Rizzo return or not. He ultimately did, but beneath him, there's a lot of new faces. Uh, International scouting director Johnny DePulia, who's one of the, the top international scouts in all baseball, resigned. Uh, farm director Dijon Watson is not returning, and the Nationals hired a new scouting director in Danny Haas. How do you see these changes affecting the organization as a whole, particularly moving into the future? Because as we've talked about, the Major League team, it, it's rebuilding still. The future is really what matters here. It speaks volumes to me. Um, you give Davey Martinez an extension. You give the GM, Mike Rizzo, an extension. So you're saying we trust the two of you, but something has to give here. So Mike Rizzo has worked with a lot of these guys. The names that you just said, he's worked with them for almost his, the entirety of his career. He's worked with them for so long. He trusts them. He likes them. But for him to say, I need to make a change and I need to hire other people, outside people that maybe I haven't worked with, it gives me a lot of hope in this system that they recognize that change needs to happen. And they picked out of organizations that have typically done very well. You have the D-backs and you have the Orioles who have 
scouted well, they've drafted well, they've developed very well. So if you can have just half of the success that they've had in their farm system all the way up now to the major league level, and you can replicate that in that system, then it makes sense that all of these hires, it seems like a huge change at once, but something has to change. If you're not winning and it's not working and you see guys that aren't developing, the Nats have had a harder time developing pitchers. You need to have something different. So we'll see one of these guys hits in the uh, the front office. And if not, make another change because that's what this whole sport is about. Prove it or sorry, that's what happens. There's no question. It's definitely a results-based business. You mentioned the pitching and having guys develop. I do think one of the encouraging things you have to look at for the Nationals is some of the key guys they acquired in those rebuilding trades that have now ascended to the majors. We saw some of them take steps forward last year, and that's a big reason why the Nationals went from a 55-win team to a 71-win team. Again, still in last place. But a 16-game swing is pretty significant, and you saw C.J. Abrams take some steps forward, Cabert Ruiz take some steps forward. There was some some bad mixed in with the good there. It wasn't all great, but we saw positive steps overall. And on the pitching side, we saw Josiah Gray really trim down those home run allowed numbers that were getting pretty ugly and out of sorts there. Made his first all-star team. Mackenzie Gore showed some flashes, struck out 10 per nine. Again, the control came and went a little bit. But on the whole, you saw some of these young guys who were the top players they acquired taking steps forward in the majors, which is encouraging. And now it feels like, okay, this farm system, we don't need every single guy to hit. We have some foundational players to build with in the majors. Now we just need to fill in around them. So it does seem like it's a little bit of a different dynamic than it was a year ago when it was an open question how all these guys were performing in the majors. Uh, yeah, it was. It was kind of a, are these guys going to hit? It almost felt like the draft, You, they were just picking people of like, that sounds good. That might work. It really kind of felt like a guessing game. And now I do have a lot more faith in this organization and the people making decisions that say, okay, we are going to develop X, Y, Z. This guy looks like somebody that he may not have hit with another team, but we're going to teach him a sweeper. And maybe that is the difference that we can do in this organization that another organization couldn't have. I would love to see them get a little more aggressive in that of taking guys from other organizations and developing them. And that I think will be the final test of how well they're doing now in the farm system developmental wise. Absolutely. So let's dive into this farm system a little bit. As we talked about, there's a lot of talent now. Dylan Cruz was the number two overall pick. A lot of people thought he was the top prospect in this draft class. Standout career at Louisiana State. Back-to-back SEC Player of the Year awards. The only player ever to accomplish that. When it came down to your reporting between him and James Wood, who is also a consensus top 10 prospect in all of baseball, how narrow were the margins? And ultimately, what was it that put Cruz at the helm at number one? It's honestly a lot closer than even I anticipated. When Cruz was drafted, I kind of thought, okay, he's the number one player in this draft class. He's the number one player in the Nats Farm system. This just makes sense. And our draft expert, Carlos, he was telling us Baseball America how excited he was about Dylan Cruz, about his tools, about what he projects. And I I bought right into it. I was like, okay, done. But then I took a step back and said, okay, let's look at James Wood because he still is not, you know, nothing. James Wood still has a ton of talent and his ceiling may even be higher than Dylan Cruz's ceiling, which is something that you have to kind of take into account when you're making this top 10 list. Now, Dylan Cruz, I think, will probably, if everything goes according to plan, and again, that's a huge if, Dylan Cruz will probably be more of an all-star perennial middle of the lineup type of guy and very exciting. James Wood projects 
he could also be that. And he could be even more so. So when looking at the two players, I had to go based off of Dylan Cruz has proven himself on a massive stage already so far. The way he performed in college is unlike basically a career we've ever seen. So it was one of those things where when you're performing like that, you get the top spot and then you can lose it. James Wood can come out and hit and rake and show us that power. And we say, okay, sorry, James Wood, we hear you. You're the number one prospect in the Nats system. But for now, it does. The nod goes to Dylan Cruz. Another way that I see James Wood could overtake Dylan Cruz is just the size factor of these two guys. I've been talking to a couple scouts, and they said, if we take baseball down to its most basic form of scouting, if you look at James Wood and you look at Dylan Cruz next to each other, you have James Wood is 6'6", 240 pounds, versus Dylan Cruz, who is six foot, 203 pounds. Those two guys look very different standing next to each other. (laughs) When you look at the size of James Wood, he gives you, that's an athlete. Wow, look at that body. Look at that makeup. He gives off athletic vibes, if you want to go off of that. So that is one way that I could see him overtake Dylan Cruz. Yeah, I want to dive into James Wood a little bit. We talked about him a lot last year. I saw him a lot in the Padres system when he was with Lake Elsinore. I did a lot of work on him during the draft and and just talking to the Padres in their front office. One of the things that stood out about James Wood last year was, I should say last year now, 2022, was, again, for a guy who was as big and physical as he was, he actually was a pretty polished hitter. He'd had a reputation for being kind of raw and having a lot of swing and miss issues out of the draft, but uh, he was tracking baseball as well. He knew the strike zone. He was working counts. And, and it really stood out that it wasn't just a big, strong athlete. He was kind of a free swinger. He had some polish to his plate approach. At the same time, one of the concerns was anytime you have a guy that's that big, six foot six, long arms, long legs, there's going to be holes. There's no way around it. It's a bigger strike zone. And there was some concern that once he saw better pitching, some of those holes would get exposed again in the California league recently in low A, it's been a lot of 92 and guys can't really control it. So once he started facing 95, 96 guys knew where to put it, what would the strikeouts look like? We saw last year, he spent the year at high in double A. We did see the strikeout spike. He did strike out 173 times, still had a solid on base percentage, still hit the ball very, very hard. The slugging percentage was great. We did see the average drop down to 262. Again, what is the outlook for him in terms of the strikeouts and the concerns there? Because they really jumped, especially once he got to double A with now the way minor league reorganization is shaped out. That's really the first level guys can actually command their fastballs. And we saw once he got to that level, he did struggle and strike out a lot more. What is that outlook looking like right now? It is something that's a bit concerning and there are echoed concerns within the organization as well of they knew there was going to be some swing and miss there. Like you said, he has a, he has long arms. So he kind of has to shorten his swing a little bit, pull it in and kind of make the zone his own. But one thing they didn't anticipate was that he's not seeing spin very well. It's something he hasn't had a ton of read on yet. So that's something they really need to work on. We can live with a strikeout here and there. We can live, you know, every once in a while you're striking out, but if you can't read when a ball is, coming at you with a little bit of spin, even a little bit, that's an issue. That's something they didn't see coming. And I think now that he's in the higher level of the minors, you're now in double A, guys do have better pitching and you're going to be facing it a lot more. And especially the way that he hits and the type of player that he is, 
he's going to be seeing off-speed pitches a lot. So if you can't hit that, that does raise a little bit of concern about how you develop going forward. Yeah, and with that, going back to kind of that one versus two debate, Dylan Cruz versus James Wood, you mentioned Wood absolutely wins out on the physicality. Dreaming of what the potential could be is is probably a higher ceiling. But there is a little, well, I shouldn't say a little, there, there's a decent amount more certainty in Dylan Cruz's ability to make consistent contact. And at the end of the day, that is the separator. Absolutely. I mean, when I was putting together the best tools list, when it was who's going to be the best hitter for average, it wasn't even a question. It's Dylan Cruz. Dylan Cruz is going to hit for average. He's going to get up to the plate and he will make contact with the ball. James Wood, not as much. So these are two players that are with somewhat room to spare, the top two prospects in this farm system. But I do want to pay attention to Brady House, who was one of the top players in his draft class in 2021 and in 2022 we didn't really get a chance to see the real brady house uh he suffered he only came out with COVID. he suffered a back injury the power wasn't there the impact wasn't there and, and we talked about uh the podcast last year it was going to be kind of a mulligan year this year he came out he only played 88 games so it was a limited season again but we saw in my mind the real brady house hit for average got on base hit for power 12 homers in that half season, more or less. I mean, he's on pace for a, a 20 plus homer, you know, 90 ish RBI season. And seeing him in the futures game, he looked really, really good. The swing, the physicality, the quality of contact. He's a guy that actually really jumped out on my radar as, hey, this is a real prospect to pay attention to. And again, people tend to have short attention spans in today's day and age. A guy is a top pick, then he struggles a little bit. People forget about him. Seeing what Brady House can do healthy really, really jumped out and in my mind really elevated him into, yeah, this is absolutely one of the 100 best prospects in baseball. What did Brady House do this year? Was it simply just a matter of health? And and what is his outlook now moving forward? It was a matter of health. That was the biggest question mark we had around Brady House because when people tell you it's a mulligan year, don't worry about it. This back injury is nothing. That's something that you go, wait a second, it's a back injury. You need that to play the game, to swing. That's not nothing. But he came out this year and kind of silenced doubters of, no, it was nothing. Don't worry about it. I'm completely fine. Watch me hit for power. Watch me hit for average. And watch me get better defensively, too. And that was something I wanted to see from Brady House to really solidify himself as the third best prospect in this organization. And he came out and well proved that. He's still not, you know, the top defensive player I've ever seen, but he did improve. And that's something that you want to see from who you hope will be third baseman of the future for the nationals. But he silenced my doubts. He as well jumped out to me of, okay, this is the Brady house. Everyone was talking about. I see it now. Yeah. Again, it was one of those guys, the futures game, you didn't have to squint too hard. It's like, Oh yeah, this is a really good player. Like you didn't have to really overthink this one. So um, I'd all be curious to see what he's able to build on again this year. He was limited again, 88 games. We still have to see him maintain it over a full season. Is that really just the next main developmental step for him? Absolutely. It's just going to be a matter of him going out there every day, putting in the reps and still showing that he can do this on a day-to-day basis. All right, Savannah. So this more or less wraps up the portion of guys who are slam dunk top 100 guys for us here at Baseball America. Uh, There's still some good players below, though, and a couple guys who either have been in the top 100 before or could potentially be in the top 100 in the future. Uh, I want to break them all down with you. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back to break down more of the Nationals Farm System. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't a search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. That's why I use Indeed for our hiring at Baseball America. It allows me to do everything on one website. I get quality candidates. I can schedule them. I can interview them. I can screen them. I can send messages to them all within Indeed. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Nationals Top 10 Prospects Podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside Savannah McCann. All right, Savannah, we talked about the Nationals organization, just where they are, majors, minors, overall farm system. We looked at who the number one prospect is, as well as Brady House's bounce back year in 2023. I want to move into the next group because the rest of this top 10 is guys who certainly have some name recognition, who have shown abilities at a high level in the past, but for whatever reason, be it injury, performance, you know, or there's, you know, a concern somewhere. So all have talent, but all have question marks. I, I want to start with Cade Cavalli. He was ready to ascend to the Nationals rotation, got hurt, had Tommy John surgery. What is his status moving into 2024? Do people within the organization still see the same potential upside? Where is Cade Cavalli at right now? So Cade, the last that we've heard from him, he was playing catch in September and feeling really good, which is a huge step in his development. The whispers are that June is when he's aiming to come back. That'll be 15 months post Tommy John surgery. And all is expected from him to come back the player that he was. He has been so great about how he's handling this because this is something you could easily get down on of. You're supposed to be a mainstay in the Nats rotation. This is finally your chance to get up to the major leagues and prove yourself and be that every five fifth day starter and you get hurt in spring training. And it's just so soul crushing. But one thing about Cade that I really like is that he is a big visualizer. He will close his eyes and almost meditate as to how he sees his season going, how he sees a start going. Oh, whatever he's doing, he visualizes it first. So when I talked to him, he said, you know, this injury is not how I visualize things, like, but I've now switched it from how I used to see it versus how I see it now. He's like, so I see my shoulder getting better. I, or I see my Tommy John surgery going better and getting better. He's like, I see my development progressing. I see myself throwing better than I did before. And as much as some people do or don't believe in all of this stuff, I like to think that it can't hurt him. It can only help him believe in himself because I'm sure I've never had Tommy John surgery, but I'm sure getting up there and trying to throw again or face live batters, that has to be scary. That has to be intimidating of what if I'm not the player I was before? What if I'm never the player I was before? What if I re-injure myself? I mean, all of those what ifs can come to your mind, but he's found a way to shut that out. So I can only hope that it works for him. 
And that's a way that you can see him when he gets up there, take the deep breath, close his eyes, say, okay, here's how this at-bat's going to go. It's going to be a strikeout. At the top of the show, we talked about how this was a position player heavy and specifically an outfield heavy top 10. In terms of the pitching in this system, our top two pitchers, Kate Pavali and Jackson Rutledge, both have major league time. My first question is, how much competition was there for Cade Cavalli as the top pitching prospect in the system? And is this where in the upper levels, the nationals are maybe, I don't want to say have more certainty, but just the fact they've progressed a little bit sooner, you can see them impacting the major league team more. Again, we've already seen those two guys in the majors. What What is the pitching outlook for this organization with those two guys at the top? It's funny because when we used to talk about this system, it was all pitchers. And you're like, uh, who is going to be playing outfield for the Washington Nationals in 2027? I don't know. Now that's completely answered. We have options of who's going to play outfield. Now who's going to be in the starting rotation? It's a little less clear. You have Kate Cavalli. You have Jackson Rutledge. You have someone that I really like is Jake Bennett. He's somebody that He's actually kind of followed Kate Cavalli's career almost to a T. They're both from Oklahoma. They go to Oklahoma. They get drafted to the Washington Nationals. They both get Tommy John surgery. So while we won't see Jake Bennett until 2025, he's somebody who's young. And once he comes back from that, I believe he'll be 24, almost 25 years old when he returns in 2025. So that'll be someone I'm really excited to see almost as long as he comes back, the player that he was impact the major leagues. And I think that he'll be able to do that behind him. You have other guys that have been hurt. You have Cole Henry who had thoracic outlet surgery. So you don't know how he's going to come back. Maybe he doesn't impact the starting rotation like we thought he might, but he'll come back in a bullpen role. So you do have a bunch of guys behind them, but I wouldn't say that it's so easy to say, absolutely. He's a number one starter. He's a, it's a little less clear cut on the pitching front. Speaking of the pitching front, I need to tip my cap to you. You came on the show last year and said, I still believe in Jackson Rutledge. And this was after a year where he had an ERA up near five in low A as a 23-year-old and just had never really shown he can start at a high level. Came out this year in 2023 and had his best season far and away. Dominated double A as a starter, cruised up through triple A as a starter, made his major league debut. Again, early results weren't great, but it's four starts. It's not anything to be alarmed about. We saw Jackson Rutledge, it seems like, finally take the step forward. A lot of people hope was in there and also began to doubt was in there as a starter. I know for me, after seeing him as a reliever in the fall league, thinking this is his role. Um, But he held up really well as a starter last year, missed bats, walks were still a little high, but again, lowest DRA of his professional career at the highest levels of the minors, made his major league debut as a starter. What is Jackson Rutledge's outlook right now? And what did he improve so much in 2023? Well, I do want to take my my bow. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I did hit on Jackson Rutledge. <laughs> I've been a Jackson Rutledge truther since the beginning. I've seen something in him and I've always liked the way that he plays the game and more so how he carries himself. Because you can always, when people are saying negative things about you, we've talked about how the Nationals or even baseball as a whole if you're not producing your top draft pick, people kind of forget about you or they start to say, well, oh, well, didn't work out on to the next. And he's silenced all of that. And he was able to tell himself, I know the player that I am. And he puts his head down. And he works. He doesn't listen to the outside noise. He doesn't talk about it. And he's not too overly showy of, hey, look what I just did. He's like, OK, I can do better. I can be better than that still. And that's something that I really like to see, especially when you're making the jump into the major leagues. 
when I asked him, you know, how are you feeling about all of this? What's going on in your head? You were just playing in low A last year. How are you handling this? And he's like, it's, I'm playing baseball. That's, that's it. That's all I'm doing. It's like, oh, okay. Glad your mindset hasn't changed because for all of us, we see it a lot differently. But he also, he's really worked to limit his walks. That's been a huge thing for him. And he, again, it's not perfect, but he's showing improvements. He's using better control. Overall, he's done a lot better in that. He's not striking out, or excuse me, he is striking out more guys. And he is really working on just overall getting guys out. And every time we hear Damian Martinez talk about, you know, what do you need to see from a starting pitcher today? He's like, get get the first out. That's all I'm asking you to do is get the first out. Jackson Rutledge is a get the first out type of guy. He goes up there and he gets that first out. And then he thinks, okay, here's what I'm going to do next. But he has a great mindset, and that's something I'm looking forward to seeing him continue into this next year. Yeah, long-term. Does he pencil into the Nationals' long-term rotation now with the steps he's taken? I think so. I still think he's a back-of-the-rotation type of guy. Um, last year, I believe it was on this podcast, he was flashing number two starter stuff. And as much as I'm a Jackson Rutledge, <laughs> go Jackson Rutledge guy, Um I do think he's probably a back of the rotation and maybe he does move to the bullpen long-term, but I still think he has the stuff to stay in the rotation. So we've talked about some of the players who took steps forward this year. There were also some players who took steps back. Again, development is not linear. We see guys have good years, bad years. And two of those outfielders, you've talked about the nationals outfield depth extensively. Robert Hassel, who was acquired as one of the top prospects in the Juan Soto trade, and Elijah Green, who was the fifth overall pick in last year's draft, uh, really entered the year considered one of the most exciting prospects in baseball. Both of them had very, very difficult seasons. Robert Hassel had an early injury and just never quite got untracked. And Elijah Green, the concerns about how much contact he was going to make really, really showed up in alarming ways in his pro debut. Let's start with Robert Hassel. What were the reviews you were getting on him? What's his outlook now? And, and has his overall potential changed as a player? Honestly, yes. And it does make evaluators nervous. Of He's no longer a no-doubter prospect of, well, of course, he's going to hit for average. Oh, we just need his power to come. And that's the only thing he's missing. That's not so much the tune anymore with Robert Hassel. Now, that's not to say all of this has a huge asterisk next to it of if this is just him taking longer to recover and he just still isn't feeling a hundred percent, that could have a huge effect on the way he's playing the game, the way he's hitting, the way he's taking out bats. And maybe that is it. And next year we'll come on and say, Oh, it's just a mulligan year for him. Don't worry about it. But that's not the tune that everyone has the way they had with Brady house where everyone was very quick to say, that's the issue here. Don't worry. I do think Robert Hassel is struggling to adjust to the national system just a bit. There are definitely differences in the way that the Padres run things versus the way the nationals run things. Not to say one's better than the other. They're just different. And I think it takes a little bit of time to adjust. The nationals are still kind of ramping up how they're using technology. And they just got like the Hawkeye data in all of their stadiums. So that's something that they're now starting to implement. And it's a huge push in this new front office of we need to start using this to get our players better. But I think Robert Hassel was used to that with the Padres who had already done that. 
And it is an adjustment of if you're used to seeing your swing one way or used to hearing feedback one way, and if you're not getting it, okay, maybe it's not connecting the same way. I do think Robert Hassel is still recovering. I think we will see him hit for average a bit better. The question of his power coming or not, I am not encouraged that we are going to see him tap into more power like we kind of hoped we would, but I'd like to be proven wrong with him because so far I'm seeing him more as a fourth outfielder, but the bat's not matching somebody that needs to be out there all the time. One of the things that was a debate was whether or not he's a true center fielder. And if he was, then maybe that could mitigate some of the power concerns. There were times where he flashed it when he first was drafted. Um, it seems like those times have become fewer and fewer now that he's getting older, maturing a little bit. What is his positional outlook now? Honestly, he probably makes the move over to right field is the biggest thing, but I don't. As he's playing now, I don't see him having a role, an everyday role in the outfield. I think he comes in and off the bend, a platoon guy. I just don't see it from him that he has the defensive skills when there's this much depth in the system ahead of him to crack that of he needs to be out there because he's so good in the outfield. Yeah. No, and again, I think next year is going to be a proven year for Robert House in a lot of ways, both in terms of his ability to show he deserves to be an, an everyday player in the major leagues uh, at the start of this year. One of the things that kind of got him on a, a bad path, you know, he's a very, very confident kid, but uh, he was chirping at Max Scherzer on Twitter over the pitch clock. Not, not the best look. And I, I think it's something where there's probably um, an element there too, of just overall maturity and, and self-awareness that probably needs to come. Is that, is that fair to say? I think that is very fair to say. And if you had to, um, play one pitcher that I don't want to mess with. Max Scherzer is that guy. So it does say something about his confidence that he was willing to go out there against Max Scherzer. But I do think it does play to maturity a bit. And not that you want to see a guy struggle, but maybe this season is something that makes him take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to quiet myself. I'm going to quiet the noise around me. I'm just going to focus on getting better so that that can speak for itself. I don't have to go out there and do it on Twitter. The other outfielder who came in as a top 100 prospect and had a, a really, really difficult year is Elijah Green. He was the fifth overall pick in last year's draft, considered one of the top three high school players in the class, and in some spaces was considered a, a candidate for number one overall. Not the favorite, but you know when you raised, hey, here's the group of guys who could go number one, there were some people who thought he belonged in that group of players went out this year and it was a very, very difficult year. He's a physical specimen who can hit the baseball a very, very long way and put up some incredible run times. But when it came down to making contact, it was a real problem this year. 75 games at Fredericksburg hit 210, struck out more than 40% of the time. And Josh Norris, our colleague, has gone and looked at this. The list of players who have struck out 40% of the time at this level, regardless of age, regardless of how many years they were pros, and has gone on to major league success is zero. It's not one, it's not two, it's zero. How alarming was Elijah Green's season? Again, he dropped out of the top 100. He's now on the fringes of the top 10 of the system. So I think we can kind of see there are real concerns there. What were evaluators seeing and saying, particularly outside the national system? Because inside, of course, they're going to say, oh, it was a bad year. You know, first year is making adjustments. He'll figure it out. This is really one of those cases where 
it's external evaluators and their looks that are probably going to hold more weight. What were they seeing? It's the tale of two players when you're talking about Elijah Green. When you see Elijah Green hit a baseball, which is, you know, happening not that often, but when you do see it, it is unlike anything evaluators have ever seen before. I've talked to scouts who are like, I've been doing this since before I was born. And let me tell you, they said, I've never seen a baseball hit harder, hit further, make a louder sound. I didn't know a baseball could make that sound type of plays Elijah Green is making at the plate. However, he's striking out so much and he's swinging at almost everything that comes his way to make a ball go out of the yard that it almost doesn't matter. So when you talk about the potential of Elijah Green, a lot of these scouts are saying if he could be this guy, even half the time, he'd be the most incredible player I've seen in a very, very long time. However, if he keeps trending this way and I'm just watching him strike out every time I'm evaluating him, you're not going to make it past the lower level of the minors. This isn't something that you just get over. Trying to get to limit his strikeouts is going to be one of the biggest elemental challenges the Nationals have to face. And I've talked to a lot of evaluators who are like, I'm so glad that's not my job because I don't know how to tell them to fix it. Now, I did talk to one evaluator who had had a bunch of conversations about Elijah Green and they heard, and I thought this was pretty interesting, that when you have a guy like Elijah Green, when he is so physical, when he's so athletic, when he's unlike anything you've ever seen at this age, you don't know how to tell him to fix things because your high school coach is not totally equipped for that. When you're in seventh grade, your coach definitely is not equipped to tell you how to manage that. He's an unspeakable athlete. So you don't want to be the one to mess it up. You don't want to tell him to do something and it completely ruins him. So I still think that he's so raw that nobody is one, wants to tell him how to do anything yet. So when he goes up there, he just tries to mash. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to hit a home run because I used to do that. That's every single ball I saw. Yeah, of course he could hit it out. Okay, now you're playing in the professionals. Now this is other people know how to get outs. Other people know how to pitch to you. Here's the difference of Elijah Green. He now needs to work on his own swing of it needs to go from less raw power to here's how I take my walks. Here's how I'm going to limit my strikeouts. Here's how I'm not going to swing at everything that's thrown to me. Yeah, it'd be really, really big. We talk about Robert Hassel facing a bounce back a year next year. I think that's even more true for Elijah Green. Savannah, as we put together this top 10, again, there's a mix of guys. You mentioned some teenagers in the lower levels. Harlan Zazana checking in at number 10. Again, big arm, doesn't always know where it's going, but raw arm talent for sure. Christian Vaquero, as we've talked about, was a super, super highly regarded international signee. Got a bonus of almost $5 million. Outside of this top 10, how many other guys would you say were in consideration? Because as you talked about, it's a lot of guys who have pedigree, have name, but they're young. There's a long way to go. Was this a, a clear cut top 10? Were there other guys in consideration? How, how many other guys would you say were kind of in the mix? I would say in true top 10 consideration, there was one other name and it was Dalen Lyle. And I reworked this list a hundred times when I was putting it together. And I would say probably 40 times out of the hundred, Dalen Lyle was in the top 10. So I really did go back and forth as to whether or not yet another 
outfielder was going to make this top 10. But ultimately, he clocks in at number 11. He's just outside. And that's only because he just doesn't project any power, really. It hasn't come through at all. And when you have, you know, Elijah Green at number nine, who projects everything in the world, and you have a guy like Daylon Lyle, who even if he does make contact with the ball and when he does, it's not going anywhere. The exit velocity just doesn't match and he doesn't project for a ton of power. So it's not going to say it's going to come. He's just young. He needs to develop. It probably won't ever come. Now, will he hit for average better? Probably. And that could have been one of the reasons he made the top 10. It just goes into, was I going to take Elijah Green out of the top 10 because of the way he performed, which would have been valid. And then put in somebody that doesn't project a ton of power or how do you work this list? What do you value in a top 10 prospect? Absolutely. And again, we'll see how it all shakes out. Generally speaking, the guys who make contact will go farther than the guys who don't, but it's understood. Yes. You have guys like Elijah Green, Harlan, Susanna, who if it all clicks, it could click big. It's just a very, very big if it's that perennial upside versus, you know, certainty debate that, you know, filters all prospect rankings and all projections and not just prospect rankings, you know, in MLB, you have a, a guy who, you know, will, give you contact and some speed, but that's kind of it versus a guy who has the potential to really, really explode, but you won't know until you give him some at bats. So, I mean, it's, it's that constant push pull that really is part of all baseball, not just prospect rankings. Absolutely. I mean, I look at Harlan Susana as somebody that could be the closer of the future. I mean, if he takes that power fastball and he does something with it and he starts to control it, Oh my gosh, imagine what the nationals could happen him. But I look at almost all of the top 10 and say, imagine what the Nationals could have in him. But we just don't know. And I feel like that's kind of the theme of this farm system is it's so young. It's so raw. You just don't know. And that's all the fun in it and all the hard decisions you have to make when you're on this side of it. (laughs) So, Savannah, as we wrap up here, because, again, the point of all this is to produce a competitive, consistent major league team. And we have seen the Nationals do that, again, throughout the 2010s. They were one of the best franchises in baseball, concluded with the World Series in 2019. So we know they're capable. We also know they're capable of pulling off a successful rebuild under Mike Rizzo because they did it at the end of the 2000s, and that became the dominant team of the 2010s. This team we saw take some steps forward last year, again, going from 55 wins to 71 wins. We saw them score nearly 100 more runs. They allowed fewer runs. So they made positive strides. Again, it's still a last place team, 20 games under 500. So there's room to go. How far away is this team from contending again? When you look at what's in the major, when you look at what's in this farm system, even if we all, we know not all 10 guys are going to click. That's not how prospect prospects work. But even if, say, five of them click, what's the timeline for this team to return to contention? It's not as far out as you might think. When you look at Dylan Cruz, he has potential to reach Washington in 2024. James Wood, potential to reach Washington in 2024. You have guys like DJ Hers, who isn't on the top 10, but he has potential to reach Washington. Trey Lipscomb is somebody that can play all around the infield. He could reach Washington by this year. Now you're putting out a very young team and a team that won't have a ton of major league experience. So I do think you'll need 
a year or two to kind of figure that out, get Cade Cavalli healthy, give Jackson Relish some more innings, let Josiah Gray still kind of hopefully have a better year than he ended last year. It was really good up until the All-Star break and then kind of tailed off at the end there. But, hey, that's baseball. That's a young arm. That's somebody that's still developing. I would go out on a limb and say probably 2025, 2026, we could see this Nationals organization be a force to be reckoned with. And again, even if five of these prospects hit, you have the top two players in this system that could impact the Nats now. So when all the rest of these prospects, if they hit or not, are able to come up to the minor or come up to the major leagues from the minors in 25, 26, that could be something really special. Brady House could, my crazy hot take that I have to throw in here, I could potentially see Brady House making a September call up with the Nats this year. If not, next season i am so excited to see him make an opening day roster yeah absolutely again we've talked about it ad nauseum it just bears repeating again nationals fans if i told you that your team was finally going to win a world series in 2019 but the next five years were going to be a bit ugly with a rebuild every nationals fan alive would have taken it that's what happened and now they're in the rebuild i, I will say this is i've been doing these podcasts for years now in recent years, this is the most hopeful the national system has felt just in terms of you're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're starting to see the upswing in the majors. You're starting to see the premium talent ascend the minor. So again, I feel like there's still a bit of, like you said, a hold on period. It's not going to be 2024. It might not even be 2025. It's just going to depend on health and how these guys progress. But it does feel like you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We talk about putting together these projected lineups and rotations there's been years where you're wondering who do I put in this spot? Cause there just wasn't anyone, uh, there were no good options. Now you have good options. And I feel like that's a really small thing, but it's an important step for the future of this franchise. Absolutely. I mean, if you can look at that 2027 projected roster and if any of that hits, that's a lineup that Nats fans can be so excited about. So hold on to that. Look at that when you are in the moment when the Nationals are being swept by the Reds in a four-game series. Just think of that. Think of 2027 and go, but that's what I'm holding out hope for. Absolutely. All right. Well, Savannah, thank you so much for joining us today and lending us your insight and analysis. We appreciate it as always. Thanks so much for having me. Let's do it again next year. All right, everyone, that'll do it for the Baseball America Top 10 Prospects podcast kickoff edition with the Washington Nationals. Go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Savannah McCann, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, everybody.